Hey, Balaji. Yo. Thank you for uh, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, transparently, when I started this podcast just a few months ago, there was a number of people, like a handful at the top of my list for, for you know, guests that I'd love to have on. And I've already been fortunate to have a couple like Vitalik and Keith Raboy. Uh, and you were certainly right up at the top of that list and have you on at this point early in the, the you know, lifespan of the podcast. Super exciting to me. Um, so, so thank you for coming on first and foremost. Great. Great to be here. So I know you're not a big fan of credentials, but since you're not going to say them, I want to start with a few. Um, just to introduce you for those who aren't familiar, and I know a lot of people listening probably are, but uh, first thing I think of, you're an investor. You were a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz for a while. Uh, Mark Andreessen famously said, you have the most good ideas per minute of anyone he knows. You were also a very early investor in crypto, um, kind of giving credit for bringing that to Silicon Valley, bringing attention to crypto in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, back since early 2010s. Uh, also invested in like Soylent, OpenGov, a number of other startups. You're also an entrepreneur, uh, co-founded Council, genomics company, sold for $375 million. And then, you know, later on, uh, helped lead the team at Earn, Earn.com, sold to Coinbase, uh, another company called Teleport. That was pretty interesting. Uh, underrated is that you're a doctor. You got a BS, MS, PhD from Stanford uh, in electrical engineering, as well as an MS in chemical engineering. You taught a class with about a quarter million people, uh, a MOOC, you know, provided by Stanford. And you've got about that many followers on Twitter as well, quarter million people and uh, a lot of influence within the tech world. So a uh, laundry list of credentials that you don't particularly like to talk about, but I think it's helpful in framing uh, where you're coming from as we get into some of these big futuristic type topics. So, you know, when I, when I said, you know, I'm not interested in credentialism, that, you know, what I meant by that is basically that I didn't like it when someone's like, oh, you know, I'm an expert in this and therefore I'm right. I'm like, okay, you may be an expert, but I'd like to actually see the math. I'd like to see the argument, you know, no offense, but, you know, and, and so the thing is that credentialism is something that's, I think, misunderstood. Credentialism is to accomplishment roughly what scientism is to science, if you've heard that term, meaning, you know, there are genuine accomplishments like, you know, I don't know, um, uh, Satoshi founding Bitcoin or someone, you know, coming up with a mathematical theorem or Feynman, you know, and, 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 you know, his, 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 uh, his theories of physics and, you know, um, Feynman diagrams and, and so on. Those are genuine accomplishments, but, um, that's different than, you know, yes, it is also true that Feynman is a professor and so on, but those, those, uh, you know, laurels or titles are downstream of the accomplishments. And uh, the, the reason I put that, by the way, at the time on my bio was that I was just seeing all these people saying, oh, science says masks don't work. And then they turned around and said, well, science says masks work. And I'm like, you don't know what science says. <laughs> like, you know, what, what people were doing were essentially stealing the prestige of Maxwell's equations for some, you know, sketchy data analysis. And the difference being that Maxwell's equations, you know, have trillions of independent replications, you know, a billion people a day when they pick up their phones, you know, in many different ways, uh, you know, the, the theory underpinning our understanding of electrical and magnetic fields is valid by that, as is our understanding of quantum mechanics. You've got an experimental test every day, a billion people pick up the phone and that's being tested. That's certainly happened for more than a thousand days in a row. So you've got more than a trillion independent tests, right? So that's something, I mean, and not to mention every other device that we use. So that's something which has been massively independently validated 
as opposed to somebody saying, oh, well, it was a Harvard professor who published in Nature and the report was written up in the New York Times. Don't you know who I am? Therefore, masks don't work or, or, or the converse, right? So that latter thing is credentialism or scientism. And so that's distinct from genuine science, you know, which does exist, genuine accomplishment, which does exist. Anyway, so I just, I just wanted to make that distinction there because it's not that accomplishment doesn't exist or what have you. It's just that the, the manner in which these things are invoked um, doesn't, isn't, isn't dispositive in any given argument. This is actually also related to something else from science, which is, you know, if a distinguished older scientist says that something is possible, he's usually right, she's usually right. But if they say it's impossible, then, you know, they're often wrong. You know, folks have said that flying machines were not possible. You know, for example, that uh, the atomic bomb was not possible. All those things were claimed and they turned out to be untrue. Yeah, so it's interesting and I appreciate the clarification. I think it also works kind of the other way where if you're not kind of a quote unquote expert, uh, people tend to discount your opinion, even if you actually might be taking either a more sophisticated or a more novel approach to a problem or a situation. And so a lot of industries, I think I'm seeing disrupted by people from outside of them. You look at like Elon Musk and with Tesla and SpaceX, um, kind of no business in those fields from his background, but takes an engineering approach to these problems and says, you know, I think all these people who say this is impossible are wrong and I'm going to go do it anyway. Um, yep. So it's kind of interesting. One thing about Elon though is, yeah, he thought everybody was wrong, but he came to that conclusion after reading and mastering many books on physics, you know, and um, he understood the physics well enough to understand, okay, yes, you know, this is possible at low cost. These people's assumptions are incorrect. So it was, it was not simply, you know, um, contrarianism for the sake of it. It was a calculated, you know, rationally backed, you know, disagreement with the consensus because the consensus is sometimes correct and it's sometimes incorrect. If it's incorrect, you need to give a rational argument as to why it's incorrect. Yeah, that's kind of interesting as well. I don't know if this is like a perfect relation, but you've talked about the difference between inheriting and founding. And you've talked about it in terms of like institutions and how, you know, if you inherit an institution, you're kind of blind to its mortality in certain ways and its weaknesses and you forget how it was made in the first place. Uh, yep. And you become kind of vulnerable to people who are then founding. Uh, does that same kind of thinking can, can that be applied almost to... Um, I guess, domain knowledge where, you know, Elon's from the, from the bottom up from books reading about physics, whereas people who maybe are working in rocket science, people who are like working in NASA, they kind of inherit these goals from, you know, the previous leaders of the institution and it can get a little bit stale and they forget like what they were aiming for. Yeah. So basically founding versus inheriting is a very important characteristic of where we are in the West broadly. Um, you know, in, in the same sense that, you know, a third or fourth or, you know, fifth generation person who inherits a factory doesn't understand how to build it in the first place. And maybe they can, you know, go in and say, hey, you know, we're making t-shirts for X, I'd like to have a logo on Y. They might be able to make some small edits around it, but they, they didn't see the creation process. They weren't able to do that. And moreover, you know, they've, they've been receiving money or a dividend of some kind. Um, and so they, they're often not hungry. And so that's kind of where the East Coast of the U.S. is in many ways. It's about inherited names, uh, whether it's, 
you know, Clinton or Bush or Trump or Kennedy or Salzburger or Murdoch, you know, it's basically inherited institutions, you know, it's like a, a passed down fortune, a passed down newspaper. It's often a passed down seat in Congress, right? You know, you sometimes, you frequently have, for example, widows uh, taking, you know, the seats of their husbands. You have, uh, you know, Congress people who go and nominate their successor. And, um, you know, it's very hereditary in many ways. Name recognition was something that was sent up as a uh, you know, it was sort of mocked on camera in a, in a Hollywood movie from many years ago, I think with Eddie Murphy, where there was a guy who just had the same name as a congressperson, even though it was a totally different person and was able to run on that alone, just the name, you know, the brand around the name, even though it's a different person. I, I may be misremembering it, but The Distinguished Gentleman is uh, the movie. It's actually like almost 30 years ago, right? So even 30 years ago, this was understood that it was just all name recognition. You know, you inherited um, a name, you inherited a fortune, you inherited a newspaper, you inherited a business, but most fundamentally people are on the East Coast are inheriting institutions. They're inheriting, you know, just like the third generation, you know, fifth generation person who inherits a factory doesn't understand how to operate it. What do you think the 45th or 46th or whatever generation president has, you know, in terms of their understanding of this incredibly complicated government, right? How about, you know, in terms of a city? You know, these, these are not people who could organize the US military or the NYPD or even most regulatory agencies or borders or things like that from scratch. They couldn't, you know, they're not Ben Franklin or George Washington. They're not founder level people. By contrast, you look at Bezos, you know, within our lifetime, you look at Zuckerberg. Within our lifetime, these people organized gigantic multinational logistics and information networks that service billions of people a day with, you know, very, very strong commercial latency guarantees. You know, you hit a button and you expect to get exactly what you paid for at the price you paid for it at the time you expect it, you know, for millions of different goods. I mean, the complexity of that is all, it's almost unimaginable how hard that is. And that's just one of the businesses that Amazon runs, right? And so that is something where, you know, it's the complexity is comparable in many ways to like the military of a country. The reason I say that is people are like, oh, well, where are the guns or whatever? Actually, you know, the shooting part is uh, obviously it's important, but, you know, I don't know, there's that saying, right? Amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. The logistics of how to organize these incredibly complicated networks those are things which, you know, are a West Coast phenomenon. That's a founding phenomenon. And um, it's not just West Coast nowadays because technology has become a culture exporter thanks to, you know, uh, Y Combinator and AngelList and Peter Thiel and Mark Anderson and, you know, Ben Horowitz's writing, startup culture is now global. And so it's being exported now that we've gone remote. Um, you know, the, the San Francisco Bay Area group has become a nomadic people. We're finally achieving our destiny as a cloud people. And so this fundamental conflict of legitimacy of visions, founding versus inheriting. Well, one big difference, by the way, with inheriting is it's a very waterfall kind of model. You know, one day you're not running the business or the, you know, newspaper or the government or whatever, and the neck or the Federal Reserve, right? And the next day you are booms, you know, swapped over, right? And, um, and so it's all at once. Whereas with founding, it's continuous, you know, like Zuckerberg or Bezos or, you know, any of the CEOs of these institutions were not named, 
you know, like CEO instantly one day, they built up to, or rather they started out as CEO. It's true, but they were CEO of nothing. You know, they were CEO of, you know, a dorm room startup or their CEO of, uh, you know, you've seen the photo of Bezos where he's just in like some, you know, small office with Amazon, you know, before it's current logo written on the wall. So CEO of nothing. And then all the backlinks came into them over time, right? When I say a backlink, uh, you know, kind of extending the concept from Google, right? When website A links to website B, but not vice versa, in a sense, website A is um, crediting website B, right? It's like a pointer. It's like allegiance or a hierarchical relationship in some sense. Even if website A doesn't realize it, they're sort of saying website B is important. You know, even if they don't like it, they're saying, go and look here. Um, there's a way, of course, not passing link juice. You can have a so-called no-follow thing. That's a technical point. But generally speaking, when A links to B, A is saying, okay, B has something of value. And so that concept of a backlink can be extended to other things where you have a leader who has zero backlinks at the beginning. They're CEO of nothing, and they gain backlinks over time, and they've gained literally billions of backlinks. Billions of people rely on them you know, for running the internet, for you know, running their small business, for communicating with friends, and so on and so forth. And that was done from basically a standing start, right? You know, in, on the West Coast, the, the son of a dentist, Zuckerberg, can become far wealthier than the sons of the millionaires on the East Coast. And this is actually, you know, one of the true, I think, like lines of conflict that's going to arise over the next several years is going to be old money versus new money, East Coast versus West Coast, MMT versus BTC, um, you know, the state versus the network, uh, surveillance versus encryption, um, you know, the, the nation state versus the international network and so on and so forth, right? These are, these are genuine conflicts that I think are going to arise. And of course, it's more than just East Coast, West Coast. That's just sort of almost like a legacy axis because of course there's tech people on, you know, the, the East Coast. And of course there's um, non-tech state people, for lack of a better term, um, on the West Coast. And I think the most important axis, you might call it technological progressive versus technological conservative, or to be, you know, and you could also say technological progressive versus political progressive. The distinction being that, you know, let's take those two different ways of framing it. The technological progressive believes fundamentally in technological progress. And as, you know, thinks about technology as a limiting factor for things. So, you know, why, why don't we have everybody cured of COVID? Well, we don't have a vaccine. Why don't we have um, why aren't we solving climate change? Well, we don't have enough nuclear power to reduce our dependence on, you know, uh, carbon emitting things. Why don't we have, um, you know, why do we have so many traffic fatalities? Well, because we don't have self-driving cars yet. Our technology isn't good enough yet. So they think about technology as a fundamental way of dealing with things. Whereas your technological conservative, well, first they express an antipathy towards technology in general in many different ways. You know, often it's just by kind of expressing, you know, contempt towards the earnestness of these quote tech bros. But it's also expressed in a different way, which is, you know, their faith is in the state. Ultimately, their appeals terminate in the state. So going to the same problems, um, how to solve COVID? Well, we need to do lockdown. People need to stay in their homes. We need to compel them to do things. How do we, uh, you know, solve climate change? Well, we need to, you know, have a carbon tax and we need to force lots of people to do various things and we need the Kyoto Accords and, and so on. How do we address um, you know, uh, traffic fatalities. Well, we need to regulate businesses and, and stop them from, you know, like, like using cars, uh, you know, or, or, or people and, and, you know, increase gas taxes and deter them and so on. And look, I'm not saying, sometimes it is true that you need to use the law. Um, you need to actually point a gun at someone because that's what a law is, right? A law makes something mandatory or forbidden, but that's the last resort. 
You know, the first resort is to try to figure out how to do it voluntarily. So in many ways, often the technological progressive and political progressive do agree on certain problems. I mean, who can, who can disagree that COVID is a problem, right? Who can disagree that traffic fatalities are a problem? But where there's a fundamental disagreement is on the mechanism of solution. You know, the, the political progressive will laugh at the conservative because the conservative will say, oh, let's have thoughts and prayers. And the political progressive will say, ha that's nonsense and said we should pass a law. But the technological progressive looks at that and says, pass a law. Well, has regulation protected our privacy? You know, the NSA is spying on us. The only thing that protects our privacy is encryption. Rather than pass law, write code. And so it's a fundamental difference between the first instinct being to pass a law, to appeal to some existing institution, to try to coerce, to try to compel, to try to mandate, to try to forbid, right? That's a political progressive's go-to um, versus the technological progressive who says, how do I persuade? How do I um, do it on the network? How do I do it open source? How do you know I do it with a startup? How do I do it with a voluntary vehicle? How do I... Um, you know, do it in a monetary, a monetizable, hence sustainable way, such that it's not dependent upon, you know, the uh, beneficence of some grant making agency, but rather it is customer supported, customer funded. So it's self-sustaining, right? And that's actually harder in many ways. Um, you know, it's harder to, uh, uh, to figure out how to persuade someone than to point a gun at someone, but it's also easier in other ways because, you don't have to try to get lots of people on the same page, yell at them, browbeat them, propagandize them, et cetera. And so this fundamental difference is really, I think, the core axis um, when you say, you know, West Coast versus East Coast, technological progressive versus technological conservative or technological progressive versus political progressive. Michael Solana had a great tweet on this, in fact, a while ago, which, um, you know, uh, I think it's so good. It, it was, um, here, here it is. It is, uh, <clears throat> I am a progressive, growth is dangerous, technology is scary. Be skeptical of change and new things. Always be preserving and conserving neighborhoods and nature and culture. A conservationist, if you will, a conservative. Wait, right? And it's so good because it sort of reflects what this, you know, kind of institutional sclerotic East Coast culture has become. There they are genuinely technological conservatives. They genuinely think progress in the sense of technological progress is bad. And, uh, and I think that that is actually really a very important axis because if you go and you look at the through line, right? You look at what continues to have improved despite lots and lots of political ferment around the world. I'm not saying it's a guaranteed thing. There's a lot of human effort that goes into it. But what has improved or last, you know, 100 plus years of political ferment and world wars and so on, what has improved is technology. And so that's the thing to bet on is to bet on technological improvements. Um, it's not a sure thing, but it's something which I think is in a sense more, uh, more sure than any particular political state of affairs um, and certainly any particular state Right. So it's, it's pretty clear, like in the states that were divided on political terms, but the, this axis that you're talking about is separate from that. And it's, yes. like you said, technological progressives versus um, political progressives, I, I suppose you say, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of like positive sum versus zero sum. It's like, how can we, the, the political progressives are like, how can we allocate better versus the technological progressives are like, how can we just skip all of this and make more, better, cheaper uh, you know, faster. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. It's, it, it, it really boils down to what you think of as the most powerful force, what you think of as the first thing you go for, right? If the first thing you go for is to try to persuade somebody to ban this or forbid that or investigate this or mandate that or tax this or subsidize that or regulate this or, you know, legalize that, you know, legalize is good, but in general, um, typically good, not always, you know, typically good. Um, if, if in general, that's your first instinct, your first instinct is about yelling at people. It's a, it's a, because it, it's a collective process. Your first instinct is, you know, a group-based thing, a state-based thing. And again, I'm not saying, you know, that you don't need a state of some kind. Um, you know, you often do, but it's whether that's your first instinct, right? And uh, if that's your first instinct, you're going to find that you spend a ton of time online yelling at people and, uh, you know, trying to, it's futile in many ways. And, you know, there are things also, you mentioned redistribution. Yes, redistribution is a part of it. Um, but, you know, the thing is that with technology, you can, you can turn it from a conversation over how do we redistribute this scarce resource into how do we reduce scarcity? You know, uh, for example, like, you know, the fact that, everybody has pretty much access to every book, um, you know, from, you know, Project Gutenberg or tons of information on Stack Overflow and Wikipedia. You know, it's not a question of, okay, how do we allocate the resources to give everybody a copy of Encyclopedia Britannica? How do we get everybody a scanner? How do we get everybody a camera and a video camera and a microphone and, uh, you know, a GPS device and a this and a that? Well, guess what? You know, technology solved that. Technology also got that not just everybody in the West, but everybody in the rest of the world. You can argue there's some downsides of this, but now you're swapping from, oh, you know, I'm against the digital divide to, okay, well, you got billions of people online. Now that's bad. Okay, fine. But at least give some credit for, for addressing parts of the digital divide and solving that, which you thought was an insuperable problem, right? And so, you know, another way I put, it, put this is universal healthcare is not enough. We need eternal life, okay? And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, um, if you actually think about, you know, healthcare from a metric standpoint, the most important metric is your estimated life expectancy, which you can calibrate, by the way, you know, you could measure somebody's life expectancy, predicted life expectancy, and over a long time, see if they actually died by the age they predicted. If they're 50 and you think they've got 30 years to live and they die sooner, you look at why that happened. And if it turned out to be a car accident, okay, one thing, but if it, it turned out to be, you know, something else, then your prediction algorithm is off in one way or the other, right? It take a, it's a long time for them to calibrate, but you could. The reason that that prediction algorithm is important is it, it in theory, would encompass many different forms of risk. It would encompass, um, you know, heart disease and cancer and diabetes and this and that. And there's a reason that people say, oh, that person looks like they've aged or they haven't aged. It's because it's sort of like a, a literally a biological clock, right? So it shows how many miles are on somebody, you know? And um, it's not perfect, but I think that, um, you know, the ability to reverse aging, this is something which is possible. And one, one thing I find is really interesting is when you talk to somebody who's ostensibly in favor of universal healthcare about, you know, life extension or reversing aging, not all of them, but some of them are like, well, you know, people need to die. Like, that's really weird, you know? And I'm like, just a second ago, you were talking about how terrible it was that people were dying due to scarce resources. And I'm in a sense agreeing with you, right? But I'm saying that it's not enough to just do universal healthcare. Um, it is important to actually 
you know, solve the root problems. And this is the question of, you know, are you trying to solve problems or are you solving problems, right? Are you just interested in yelling at people? Is it more just yelling, you get off from yelling at people online um, and, and trying to browbeat them and compel them to take their money and declare victory in the name of some moral cause? Or are you looking for a non-zero something where everybody benefits, right? And I think that that's, that's really interesting where you can sort of call the bluff and say, are you actually interested in reversing aging and life extension? Because that would address a lot of these other things. It would take away the scarcity in the same way that the iPhone took away the scarcity of cameras or video cameras. You would, you know, you basically have to solve a thousand different healthcare problems at once to do reversing reversal of aging. And that might seem hard, but you know, the Larry Page dictum is very important. You know, he talks about how 10x is sometimes easier than 10%. You know, 10x can be easier than 10% because a paradigmatic change can you know change it right like if you tried to speed up um photo development with you know like kodak put lots of people on making you know these these photos develop faster or whatever you know like the um like the instant instant films or whatever you know and there's a certain limit that you're going to hit with a chemical process but a digital process wouldn't just allow you to develop the photos faster, let you distribute them faster because it's solid state, right? So you've got a paradigmatic change. You have a 10x improvement because you changed the paradigm. And that's, you know, an over, overused term, paradigmatic change. But in some, some places, it's actually underused in terms of thinking that a paradigmatic change is even possible. Every time you talk, I have like 10 things that come up. I'm like, oh, that's going to be the great thing to jump to. And then there's like 10 other points that are super interesting. And I just, I'm going to go with the last one. So you talked about Larry Page, uh, you know, 10x can be easier than 10%. Uh, I do want to talk and drill in a little bit on reversing aging because um, I think it's super interesting. You've talked about it and kind of put it on a pedestal almost as, you know, you wrote the purpose of technology uh, and you hinted at it earlier, but like techno- if you agree that the proximate purpose of te- technology is to solve scarcity, uh, time is the scarcest asset. Therefore, life extension is the goal of technology. Um, Correct. You look at aging and the people who are working, you know, to, to figure out aging and reverse aging, or at least slow it down significantly, and then ultimately stop it and reverse it. And you're talking about like, Aubrey de Grey, uh, Laura Deming, David Sinclair, etc. Yep. Um, these people and you know, the Buck Institute, and uh, the guys at Google and a number of other institutions, um, they have together very limited funding pales in comparison to like cancer research, for example. Cancer, obviously, something that we would like to solve, uh, inflicts a lot of suffering on people. And, you know, I'm not, my grandparents die of cancer. I'm not like, you know, putting that down in any way. But uh, the fact of the matter is, as, as least as the last time I saw it, was that like, if we were to solve cancer, totally eliminate it, solve heart disease, totally eliminate it, solve Alzheimer's, totally eliminate it. Um, people are basically going to die of like the next thing. Uh, and so, you know, all together, if we solve those few things, I think it was like five years plus or minus that we'd be adding to the global, um, you know, average human lifespan. Whereas if we go in reverse aging and we have some, you know, means of success along that goal, like the 10x goal that you're talking about, that is huge. And yet we're allocating very little resources to it, probably stemming from the fact that we're allocating very little attention to it. No one knows about these studies that they're, you know, making mice live 30, 50 percent longer, whatever it is. Um, so there's no money, there's no attention. And then on top of that, we've got the regulation, which we hinted at earlier, like regulation versus innovation. And the regulation is a huge impediment on innovation in this space where, you know, the FDA makes it 10 years before you can get a drug kind of fully through the process. How do you view all of this? Like if that's the ultimate purpose of technology, obviously we want to get there. You're a big 
technology guy, you're trying to bring us in the future as, as best of a future as you can. Um, how do we even approach a problem with so many, with so many issues like around this that are so fundamental? Well, so, you know, the first thing is, you know, Thoreau has this great saying, which is there's a thousand hacking at the branches of evil for everyone who is striking the root. Right. And, um, you know, this is, this is a pretty important concept. Um, You know, in math, for example, if you're solving, I don't know, second order differential equations, you can do each one, one by one, or you can understand the concept of eigenfunctions and understand the complex exponential is like the master solution to all of them and reduce it to basically solving a quadratic equation for each one. And uh, which, which, you know, a known thing. Um, And so often, you know, with mathematics, there's, there's a really good way to strike the root. You just, um, you, you just come up with a more general theorem, which all these other things are a special case of. In the same way, you know, doctors, for example, if you ask them what is the number one medication they prescribe for people, smart doctors will say fitness. You know, if we, and if everybody would, would be fit, that would reduce cancer, that would reduce heart disease, all this other stuff. It like just jumps out. It's a cross. If you could put fitness into a pill, then you'd prescribe to everybody. So, you know, it is actually maybe possible to do that. There's, um, there's a lot of studies of, you know, myostatin and foliostatin nulls, which, um, you know, show that you can make people or, or mammals at least really ripped and it works in humans. Uh, and there's, there's other kinds of studies on this where, you know, people have this mentality that, oh, steroids must be bad. They must have side effects, but maybe we can get rid of the side effects. Maybe we can engineer them. You know, there's, there's actually a great movie, uh, Limitless, I love that movie um, because it's actually a twist on the typically dystopian, you know, Hollywood portrayal of technology. Since at the end, they're able to, you know, without giving away too much, they're able to figure out how to eliminate the side effects of this, this technology. And, um, you know, that's in the same way, like, oh, you know, man will never fly because it's like, Icarus, they fly too high. If they fly, they will always crash. That's the lesson, you know? No, actually, we're able to build aircraft that don't crash, right? So, you know, this, this sort of fatalistic idea that you can never improve, that every improvement comes with a downside, it has not been the case in other areas. So, you know, with determined effort, you could probably come, you might need to rebrand it, not call it steroids, you call it something else. Okay, but, um, you know, there's probably drugs that can improve physical fitness and health that might be like this sort of fabled idea of prescribing fitness. For example, just to, you know, sort of be provocative, um, you know, Lance Armstrong's chemists, in a sense, should have won the Nobel Prize for chemistry. Okay. Why? Yeah. Okay. Look, the guy cheated on, you know, like by the rules of the competition and so on. I'm not disputing any of that. However, he had cancer and whatever they did to him chemically, biochemically was able to bring him back from cancer to winning, you know, these incredibly uh, draining competitions, you know, where people who are in the best shapes of their lives usually can't win, right? And if those treatments did not have some long-term cost, if they did not like reduce his life expectancy or mess him up some other way, if they were just Pareto better, we should all know about them. You know, we should know about them because, I mean, if you could take a cancer patient and have them winning, you know, I believe the Tour de France, right? That's actually an important discovery. Instead, you know, it's, it's all being pathologized or what have you. And look, I, I get it. I understand, you know, by the rules of the competition, he, um, he did dope when he said he wasn't doping, right? But, um, but 
if you zoom out from that and just think about like the health benefit, maybe there's something there for, for cancer patient recovery, right. Or for other patient recovery. So that's the kind of thing that I, I think about. And, you know, it is, um, it's, it's interesting how little we think about this, partly because our entire medical system is sort of set up like a pinball machine where the payoff is at the bottom. Okay. So uh, what I mean by that is, you know, the, the biggest payments for doctors are when, you know, they're wheeling somebody in on a gurney for surgery or, you know, um, sometimes um, some, some big procedure of some kind. Right. And I'm not, look, you know, doctors are like anybody else. They're, they're well-meaning, but they are, incentives also do matter. And um, the lowest prestige thing you can be in many ways is a, is a so-called general practitioner where you're dispatching people to these specialists, right? And the specialists will, you know, carve somebody up if they're a surgeon or they'll, you know, maybe they'll do radiology, imaging or stuff like that. And all these, these things are the, the fancy things which are more prestigious and often more lucrative, remunerative. Problem is that what you actually want, if you only got a finite number of house MDs or, or Dookie Housers, like genius diagnosticians, you want them upstream. You want them at the top. You want them catching the stuff early. You want them preventing rather than curing because an ounce prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's often easier to catch something early on. You know, you want to just constantly scan the body, find this stuff, nip it in the bud if you can, um, and before it becomes something that is causing a lot of pain or, or, or problems, right? And, uh, and sometimes that's, that's better, right? And so um, this is something where our system, though, is set up, you know, it, it's kind of like people talk about uh, the police as being crime historians as opposed to crime prevention, you know? Okay, you take the history of a crime. Um, you know, crime prevention is just a different thing than crime historian, you know? Like a crime prevention, you have deterrence of the crime happening in the first place. And so, you know, the, the idea would be rather than being palliative, rather than just waiting for somebody to get sick, you're constantly monitoring and preventing them from getting sick in the first place. It's a good article on this from several years ago called uh, The Measured Man in the Atlantic by a guy named Larry Smarr, who instrumented himself and found various metabolic things. You know, he's a physicist. He instrumented himself, found various metabolic things out of whack, brought all these graphs to his doctors who laughed at it. Then a few weeks, months later, he actually came down, you know, he, he saw some inflammation, I think in CRP or something like that. And then, you know, they said, oh, it's nothing, you're silly hypochondriac, whatever. Then a few months or weeks later, you know, that thing, which he had uh, metrics on, but no symptoms of, he actually started feeling symptoms and it was some inflammation thing and he had to be hospitalized. And he realized, you know, we're actually, we're not doing medicine right. In, in a real sense, you know, um, Think about all the analytics you have now. You have, you know, every page view, you know, every transaction, um, you've, you've got every old email, you can search it, you can sort it, but you know more about what's going on in Budapest or Bangalore or Bangkok than in your own body. You know, quantified self is starting to get there, but it's been slow. It's been held back by the FDA. You know, the FDA nerfed the Apple Watch. This was in the Wall Street Journal several years ago. You know, Apple Watch wanted to have sensors in there for like continuous glucose meters and so on. And this was considered a diagnostic, so it was kept out. And you know, the problem with this, of course, is had Apple been able to move at the same pace that they put in everything else, um, well, you know, Android manufacturers would have copied them, and maybe we would have had in 2020 lots and lots of watches that had lots of medical sensors in there that could have detected COVID early. And we know that there's some signal, you know, you look at the Aura ring, they're doing these studies now. Um, I believe some of it has been uh, published. Scripps is also doing a study, you know, where temperature monitoring 
was an earlier predictor of COVID, right? So rather than, you know, again, like with testing, I was talking about scaling up testing and so on. And look, testing is fine. I ran a lab testing company and so on. But, you know, if you're talking about macroscopic quantities of blood or saliva, you have to do sample collection. You know, you have to, you know, mail the sample to a lab. Um, it has to be accessioned. It has to, you know, if you do DNA extraction, you have to process that um, or RNA extraction, what have you, depending on what kind of test you're doing. And, um, and then you need to, you know, sequence or genotype it. And then you need to look at the stuff and so on. And especially the mailing process takes time. The paradigmatically different route you know, to not have just 10x lower prices, but 10x, 100x lower time is to instrument your own body, to have the test be of the form factor of a watch, right? Um, or, or some kind of device, a patch, a ring, you know, that is just constantly on your body. And that is, you know, the kind of thing, again, that's not going to be solved by quote, universal healthcare. It's only going to be solved by technological developments and often removing the roadblocks of regulation that prevent those things from happening in the first place. So that's another example of where a paradigmatic change is easier. You know, making shipping to a facility, you're not going to get that to be 100x faster. But putting a device on somebody's body, you get a 10x, 100x faster diagnosis. And then you, if you want to, you can have a doctor consult with you and look at it in the cloud, right? You have a telemedical doctor. Now the telemedicine finally also is being legalized, you know, after, after a long regulatory block. You know, the block in the U.S. on that was that a doctor, you know, who had a license in California couldn't practice in Oregon very easily. Or, you know, the basic point is that 50 state reciprocity really wasn't, uh, wasn't there. You know, you had to like go and get a medical license in different states. This is silly bureaucratic overhead. And finally, in a genuine emergency, that got changed. And so doctors could do telemedical consults. Okay, great. So combine telemedicine with quantified self, and now a doctor could start monitoring the dashboards of hundreds, thousands of people, and basically be like your outsourced sysadmin, but, you know, um, you call them a physidmin, P-H-Y-S, that's a good term, the physidmin, like physiological admin, um, just like a sysadmin would look at the metrics for your website and look at your memory consumption, your RAM and whatnot. And, you know, they'd, they'd have sort of an intuition. This person would be looking at all your metrics, as would you. And uh, you actually monitor this stuff. And that now starts to get you from, you know, the crime historian to the crime preventer, from the, you know, medical historian to the preventer. This, you know, looping it all together, the point is our current system is set, set up to just allow people to get sick and then patch them up. It's not really set up for prevention, let alone enhancement, you know, enhancement of normal functioning. Um, now, I think that is the back door. Again, you know, the, the back door to medicine, as people have said, is fitness. Perhaps what that is, you know, maybe it's reversing aging plus, you know, pills or treatments or whatever to make people more fit. And that turns out to take down, take care of everything downstream, because for the same reason that 20 year olds are healthier generally than 50 and 60 year olds, if you can reverse aging, you make people more fit, fit people have less health issues than unfit people, boom, maybe you're striking the root. And that's where I think we need to put the research and the energy, paradigmatically different. You've been looking at businesses like the one that you kind of just or, or the the type of business that you just kind of referred to something that's measuring um you know biomarkers and keeping track of your health and enabling you basically being like a digital assistant for managing your own health and then to your point you can have doctors helping you know coming in and, and advising on that as well remotely um you know you invested in a company called uh what was it omada i think uh yep. back a few years ago uh, several years ago, actually. And so you have these visions, uh, a number of them for 
you know, whether it's crypto or life extension or um, network state, you have these concepts that you VR, you, you have these concepts that you see very clearly playing out in the future. And thus far, you've been, you know, at the momentum is going along the lines that you've been talking about for several years. So on that point, uh, COVID obviously has, you know, dramatically accelerated some of these, um, you know, lines of progress, as well as maybe shifted a few in a little bit different of a direction than they otherwise might have gone. Uh, would like to hear, you know, over the last several years, some of your biggest ideas, how have your perspectives been shifted besides just pure acceleration of speed, uh, if at all? And then separately from that, when you think about these these businesses or, or these tracks of the future, and you're talking about like 10, even 20 years out, how do you put timestamps on these things? Like, how do you just generally approach, you know, the development of VR? How do you think about the timing? Uh, there's a saying, you know, too early is the same as being wrong, right? But I'd rather be too early and wrong than um, too late. So, you know, lots of stuff that I've been interested in, like machine learning, genomics, crypto, remote, digital nomads, COVID, uh, I don't know, lots of stuff, you know. Um, the, the, you know, that, that type of stuff has often been early. There's things that I've actually been late to, um, you know, also, and the things that I tend to be late to are things that, you know, for lack of a better term, are very mimetic. You know, I didn't really like social media. I still, I mean, I'm, I'm mixed on it. Um, but I didn't get social media for a long time because... I was like, who wants to just post to random people online? You know, I didn't, I don't want to, um, I actually only got on Twitter in December of 2013, November, December, 2013, which is many years after, you know, Twitter started because it's like, why do I want to read about people's breakfast tweets online? You know, I don't want to read stupid things in the news or let alone people's breakfast tweets. Eventually I realized that Twitter was actually useful because I, I realized Twitter was useful, I think in 2010 or 2011, when um, I was able to attend a genomics conference remotely effectively because a friend was there and they were just live tweeting the conference. And I was like, wow, this means I don't have to fly. I get pretty darn good notes on the conference. It's a better summary than, you know, frankly, any reporter would have written up because it's very technically informed. You know, you person will know the difference between, you know, a VCF file and, you know, just like a standard CSV, you know, they, they know technical details of, of genomics, whatever. And um, so it was informative. And I was, I was like, wow, this is, this hyper deflates, you know, the cost of having to travel. I can, I can attend the conference in 10 minutes. That's actually amazingly good. Uh, and so I was like, started to get turned on to some utility of social media at that time. Um, so that was something that I was late to, the things that are very mimetic, but things that uh, mimetic in the, you know, Thielian, Girardian sense, where it's like imitating other people. Um, so I'm definitely not saying I'm always right or whatever. There's stuff like, you know, I've never been able to pick out Snapchat from a thousand other social apps. You know, that's not my strength. Um, so there are people who are good at that. Um, or, or maybe they're just lucky or, or they're lucky and good. I don't know. Um, Facebook, Snapchat, never been, never really be my thing. Uh, but the, but what would be my thing, for example, is decentralized social media. I knew that that was going to come because that's almost anti-memetic. You know, it's something where I could tell that there was going to be more demand for that. Um, and I do think that, uh, you know, ghost and mirror and, you know, a bunch of other things, some of which are public and some of which are not, um, are going to do well. Mirrors, uh, Denise Nazarov's, you know, new thing, which he announced recently. Um, 
ghost is by John O'Neill. I I'm an investor in Dennis's or Denise's company, not in, not in John's company, but I'm just a fan of both them. And um, so coming back though, to the same, the reason, yes, being early is the same as being wrong, but I'd rather be early for lots of reasons, obviously, you know, um, because you don't know how fast something is going to improve versus not. Uh, you asked a different question, which is what things, you know, got reversed, right? So Devin Zugel had a good tweet on this uh, a while back, which I responded to. And she's like, a lot of people have seen, been saying that COVID accelerated a lot of trends that are already happening. What are examples of trends that people thought were the future that are now slow to reverse? And my examples were Yimby, you know, no point in reforming San Francisco anymore, just go remote. Um, Chinese FDI, foreign direct investment, that was just going completely vertical and then just fell off a cliff. International travel, I think 2019 might be the generational high water mark. Um, I think this is also something, by the way, like this may be an area, if we're lucky, where 10x is easier than 10%. So the deprecation of plane travel may mean much more investment in telepresence. Okay, so that is to say you boot up an Android on the other side of the world and use a VR headset and VR suit to move it around. Let's talk about telepresence for a second while you, while you bring it up. The combination of being able to remote control a robot and then that robot looking something like the Boston Dynamics dog. And all of a sudden, not only is like a desk job in finance or marketing, remote work or coding or whatever it might be, but you can actually have like, you know, miners or farmers or whatever physical, you know, jobs there are being you know, displaced by remote workers, potentially someone in the United States who's actually just remote controlling from Africa. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, in fact, I talked about this seven years ago because I'd seen double robotics and so on. I could see this getting good. Um, basically, uh, telepresence will mean that your immigration policy is your firewall because unless you can identify and interdite connections, someone can remote work in the most literal sense of being telepresent. You know, I, I think that this is something that people just aren't conceptually prepared for because it sort of cuts across, you know, political lines. The, the person isn't present, but their labor is. And um, so it, uh, it, it's, you know, I shouldn't say it's hard for them to commit crimes. Um, it's still possible for them to do so, but, uh, you know, they, they are only there for a job. So they're, they're only there, you know, to, to work on something. And um, so it, it would, it would be something that um, you wouldn't necessarily have to think about the full panoply of things with immigration. You wouldn't have to think about, okay, are they a citizen? Are they a resident? And do they get a passport? And what does reciprocity look like? If they commit a crime, what happens? All of that type of stuff gets quite complicated. And lots of, I mean, countries have treaties and so on to deal with this. There's all these edge cases. Um, but now you take a lot of those issues off the table and a lot of the reasons that people would, you know, claim to object to immigration and you take those off the table, but new ones arise <laughs> um, because you could have way more immigrants and they'd be pure economic competition. And so it takes... Um, you know, some of the uh, objections of some political factions or claimed objections off the table, but it adds ones that I think others will, will find, uh, you know, objectionable. So, so I think telepresence is massively underrated in terms of the disruption it's going to bring. It, it requires a few technologies to converge, right? It requires VR and 
really high bandwidth. I mean, Starlink is also important because then you can be anywhere. Okay. So like internet has to be good, reliable anywhere. Uh, robotics obviously has to be amazing. Um, and VR has to be pretty good and haptics has to be good, but it's getting there. It's, it's improving a lot. And, um, you know, you connect up somebody in a VR room to a Boston Dynamics robot, you start getting something really amazing where you can tour 20 factories around the world in one day. And it's way better than plane flights. You know, plane flights are only for permanent international relocation. You just don't fly that frequently. Um, so, so maybe this whole thing, we can make something good out of it where you travel at the speed of light and you just inhabit a new body. There's a movie called Surrogates um, from several years ago that, you know, again, it's always this Hollywood dystopian vision of the future, but it's worth looking at where essentially people are kind of stay at home and then they inhabit like a good looking invincible version of themselves, which can get killed. And it's fine if it gets killed because you're not dead, the android is. By the way, just as a sidelight, you know, people always say, you know, they sort of assume the technology movies must be dystopian. Um, and, uh, but, but you can actually sort of deconstruct the fundamental narrative there. The fundamental narrative is we have a idyllic present today, you know, with um, implicitly often with, you know, nice grass and flowers and everybody's happy. Then in come these tech guys and, you know, they invent because they're so incautious, you know, we could invent it, but should we invent it? These incautious, crazy tech guys, you know, they, they invent this stuff. And now we have Terminator robots, uh, or we have, you know, like some dangerous thing. And so on. look, I'm not saying this doesn't happen. Obviously, you know, nuclear weapons were invented, you know, you can argue whether that was good or bad for world peace. Some people argue is net good because, you know, big countries don't invade each other anymore. They'll do it with proxy wars. Okay, so I'm not arguing that every single technology ever that was invented. I am, however, saying that the alternative way of doing it, the dystopian narrative has a premise, often implicit, that today was fine, but tomorrow is bad uh, because of technology. That's Black Mirror's premise. It's like today for all its flaws is okay, but tomorrow is bad. The alternative storyline, and again, you can do a million variations on this, is that today is bad. It is today that's a problem. And there's a small group that's working on something and trying to bring it to everybody. But these regulators, these bureaucrats, these technological conservatives and haters and what have you are stopping that uh, often for, you know, like, like either financially or politically or ideologically bad reasons. Like, for example, the scene in Contact where that fanatic went and blew up Jodie Foster's, you know, spaceship to the to the other planet right um you know th that kind of person you know like like a fanatical technological conservative just kind of hates the future or pathologizes it or what have you um and that group is stopping us and actually harming everybody actually a great scene from this is in the 1986 ghostbusters where this federal regulator from you know at the time the epa comes in and forces them to shut down the ghost containment unit. And they warn them that that's bad, that this regulator doesn't understand what they're doing, that the technology is actually important. And this small group that was holding back all this bad stuff, now the ghosts are unleashed and you know it's a huge problem and they have to you know go and bust the ghosts again, right? And you know, stay puff marshmallow mound. You know, it's worth actually rewatching, it's a really good movie. Um, you know, House of Cards is actually also good on this. House of Cards actually depicts 
you know, evil versions of characters that we don't normally see. You know, normally what you see in Hollywood, you know, is the evil CEO, right? Okay. You know, every, every movie, you know, TV show, like the big bad when they're revealed at the end of the day is usually like the evil CEO or sometimes the evil military, right? For example, um, you know, the, mo the movie, but the TV series Lost, you know, it was the Dharma Corporation, right? Heroes, this old TV series, it was some, you know, big bad corporation. The thing is, corporations, if you've actually run them, generally don't have that. You have to be really, 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 really successful to have significant impact outside of the main business, right? Even something like Airbnb, for example, is not really at the scale that, you know, the CEO can, I mean, this is a very difficult year for them, right? But it's not at the scale where the CEO can just be like, ha I'm going to do X and Y and Z that are completely not related to my main business, right? You know, you're just doing customer service all the time. It's much less glamorous than people think and much more logistically involved. It's only really at the scale of like, a Bezos or a Zuck or nowadays a Musk, where you have so much money and so much, you know, like a uh, capital that you can do things like, you know, that are cool, but they're not, you know, running like crazy private armies. You know, Bezos is doing Blue Origin, trying to get to Mars. Uh, Zuck has, you know, done virtual reality. He's got the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, which is investing in bio. You know, Musk has done Neuralink. It's only at that scale that you can do ambitious things outside your core competency. So the Hollywood thing of like the big bad corporation with these evil things, that's not even realistic. Um, what is interesting is, you know, some of the more recent stuff has actually shown um, malevolence in areas that are not normally shown to be malevolent. For example, um, House of Cards actually showed evil NGOs and evil politicians that purported to be good, right? Ghostbusters, as I mentioned, shows evil regulators. So does um, Dallas Buyers Club, shows the FDA being evil, right? And uh, these are useful movies to watch because, you know, when the FDA, for example, earlier this year was holding back COVID testing, um, you know, a lot of people ask the most naive question in the world. They're like, but why? Why would they do that? You know, because they've, they've, they have a blank in their heads, um, you know, for the FDA or any regulated, regulatory agency acting badly. They, they don't realize it, but in the same way that, you know, you know the movie Jurassic Park? You've seen that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know how in that movie, and it's very meta, by the way, I'm going to make a movie reference to explain movie references. But in that movie, <laughs> the, the dinosaurs that they revived, they filled in the gaps with amphibian DNA. And that amphibian DNA is what allowed them to then reproduce, dun, 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 right? Because they were otherwise supposed to be sterile. So in much the same way, many events that you don't have personal knowledge of, that you have not personally studied, your brain implicitly has filled in those gaps with visuals from a Hollywood movie. For example, you know, people's visual of the Eastern European shtetl comes from Fiddler, Fiddler on the Roof, right? Their visual of, um, you know, it's just anything, you know, comes from, from a movie. And if they don't know what, if they don't have a movie, uh, they don't have a visual of that time period. If you ask them to visualize, I don't know, Alexander the Great, they don't have a visual, right? They, they haven't thought about it. Um, they, they can visualize medieval Europe. It comes from the knights and horseback and, you know, all the fantasy novel type stuff that's shown on screen, right? They can visualize the wild west because that's being depicted on screen, right? And so, um, you know, whether those depictions are true or false, 
uh, they exist within the collective memory because images have been made of them since, you know, video is the high bandwidth pathway to the human brain. Text is only get you so far, right? So many people, for example, have a visual blank when it comes to how could a regulator be bad? But they understand how a corporation could be bad. What is the failure mode of a corporation? It's obvious. As you've been seen a thousand times, it is because they're so greedy, right? They're so hungry for more money. Well, here's the thing. The failure mode of a regulator, like any government agency, is that they're power hungry. Not money hungry, but power hungry, right? Um, and what that means is that they, you know, want to expand their turf. They want to expand their legacy. You know, they, they're not, they're like academics in the sense of, you know, they don't really want, um, you know, a bigger car or a fancier, you know, house or, or something like that. What they want is to write their name in history, right? And are willing to do anything to accomplish that. Um, and that showing that as a failure mode is not something that we typically see on the screen. What you see are just people who are avaricious, not people who are megalomaniacs, you know, for purpose of power, right? Um, you see greed as an issue, but not, you know, like, like that. And um, so because of that, because people lack that sort of Hollywood depiction, you got all these people saying, but why would the FDA hold back emergency use authorization for, you know, COVID testing when it was an emergency? Because their mental model is that it's some, you know, bureaucratic paper pusher and it's like the DMV and you just fill in a form and you'll eventually be on your way, right? It's not that at all. A federal regulator is very much a political actor and they prioritize what they're going to regulate by looking at the news. Um, this is not obvious, by the way. You might think, wait a second, they've just followed the news? And you're like, yeah, because the one thing that a federal regulator, you know, th these people, most of them, um, you know, aside from the so-called political appointees at the top, the political appointees are in, in a book called the Plum Book. And those are the ones that are actually appointed by a new administration. These are the most senior positions, um, like the general counsel of a particular agency or the head of the agency. Those are plum book appointees, often requiring Senate confirmation. They call it the plum book, both because it's colored plum, because it is plum after plum positions. Um, but most of these federal employees actually have a career tenure, meaning after a few years of you know, um, employment in the federal government, and that can be non-contiguous in many cases, they have career tenure and they can't be fired very easily. There's something called the Douglas factors, which are like the Miranda rights for federal employees. And what they do is they um, mitigate the severity of most offenses, right? So in the private sector, you might get fired for something. Um, but if you're, in, you know, if you're in a uh, federal employee and you've got the Douglas factors handy, um, which are used for, for all these kind of personnel conflicts, you might get that knocked down to just a 90-day suspension, right? And the way, you know, firing someone in the federal government, it's actually really hard because a manager has to fill out all these forms and these processes. It's not at-will employment. You can't just terminate someone and escort them out. Instead, it's all these processes. And importantly, the person you're trying to fire is in the office, usually on payroll during that time period when you're trying to fire them and resisting it. And everybody around is like, oh, man, you know, the manager is trying to fire this guy. The manager is the bad guy. And, and so even those people who, you know, might think that that worker did something bad are like, well, will the manager fire me next? 
And so then it becomes just harder to manage because you haven't just extra, you know, you haven't just excised this, this person. So instead what they often do is they just reassign them. It's like a hot potato. You assign them somewhere else. Right. And so firing is just really difficult. And so what it means is in these agencies, people are, you know, in, in a real sense, the ostensible head of the agency is not the head of the agency because the CEO of a company can, you know, has, has the ultimate authority of whether they can hire or fire someone in the company, but the nominal plum book appointee who runs a federal agency cannot simply hire or fire. They're, they're constrained in many ways on personnel. So in many ways, the inmates do, you know, run the asylum. And this anonymous person in Silver Spring, Maryland, writes these regulations, which then, via a mechanism called harmonization, are used by much of the rest of the world. In the same way that a small website, for example, outsources their log into Facebook, a small country outsources the regulation to the FDA or the SEC or the FAA. And it is in this fashion that that anonymous career bureaucrat with career tenure who uh, was not elected and can't be fired has a global chokehold on regulation for you know, biomedicine, for aviation, for finance, for every country in the world that adopts American regulations. So coming back to the beginning, why would they do it? Why would they block this stuff? Because it's the same you know, as the, you know, respect my authority type thing, you know, it's the same as the TSA guy at the security line where you can't make jokes when you're in the security line, as stupid as it is, as much of a kabuki as it is, as much security theater as it is, you don't make jokes. Why? Because, you know, there's an economic cost, you know, for the time you're in the line at the airport and they're waving that wand at you or whatever, you, you are you know, rolling your eyes and you're going through this process of taking off your shoes and putting your three ounce bottles or whatever on the, you know, you're throwing out any water that's in, in more than three ounce bottles. And look, it's, it's so stupid because you can bring four three ounce bottles on a plane and through the new terrorist technology called mixing, you can generate a 12 ounce bottle, you know, it's amazing, amazing new invention, right? Um, and so we know it's ludicrous. They know it's ludicrous. The entire society knows it's ludicrous. Millions of people are subject to it, you know, on a daily basis, or at least used to be until 2020 when air travel fell off a cliff. And yet it doesn't get repealed. Um, because why? You know, I guess some, some terrorist at some point threatened to do this, right? So the tax has to be in the billions of dollars. Who even knows how you'd quantify that? But it's in the delays and so on. And yet this regulation doesn't get repealed. And the reason it doesn't get repealed is, you know, What's, a, what's the benefit of civil disobedience? Everybody just, you know, like heads down, they, they go through this process because it would cost them, you know, the time to fight it is, um, you know, it, it costs them the trip, right? They might get put in for retaliatory wait time. You know, if you go and protest this three ounce bottle thing, well, they'll look at you, they'll send you for a special screening. You might miss your flight, the business deal you've got on their side, you might miss that. So you know what? It's not worth it. Just grin and bear it. And everybody makes the same calculus. Okay, that's security theater. Now you just apply that to you know, the FDA or the SEC or the EPA or any of these agencies, and it's the same thing. Once you sort of enter that tunnel, once you are under their thumb, um, you can't make jokes, right? No matter how ludicrous it is. And the difference is with you know, the TSA, you're outside of their bailiwick. Um, you know, you're outside their jurisdiction after you get outside of the flight. Right. So you you know, you're through the airport, you're on the plane, you don't make any jokes. Once you're outside, okay, then you can joke with your friends. So whatever. It's like, you know, twenty-four hour period or, or something at most. Um, you know, total total flight time there and back. But 
when you start a company that is regulated by a regulatory agency, you're under their thumb for the entire life of your company. And, you know, sometimes people after they finish and after they get out, they'll criticize the regulator. You know, there's this guy, Josh Makower, uh, M-A-K-O-W-E-R, professor at Stanford who, you know, had a huge biomedical exit. And afterwards, you know, he was like writing about how the FDA had just been, you know, holding him back. Um, and that's the issue, by the way, you know, many times if your company is killed by the FDA uh, or the FAA or whatever, it'll look like you were a failure, that you had something unsafe, that it was legitimate for them to kill your business, that they were the police that stopped you, this corporate criminal, from affecting the public with some shoddy, you know, good, some, some bag of goods. And, you know, obviously you failed because you're a loser and, uh, you know, because the, it's great that the regulatory agencies around to prevent us from being defrauded by these corporate criminals, that, that'll be the frame on it. So look, if, if you, if you reject everything, yes, sometimes you will have something you reject, which is actually bad, but that's, you know, there's a trade-off between rejecting everything and uh, rejecting nothing, it's basically the, the same as uh, an AUC curve for any machine learning people in your audience. You know, you have to trade off both the false positive and the false negative rates. Um, you know, a, a binary classifier, uh, which is, you know, approve or reject something, a regulatory process has to actually be benchmarked in terms of not just its, you know, false positives, the things it lets through that are actually bad, but it's false negatives, the things that it denies, which are actually good. And in the absence of any competitor to this regulator, there's no alternative, there's no alternative marketplace where you could show potentially that this rejected or hobbled or delayed um, or, you know, frankly banned innovation would have actually been pretty good. So it falls to those few people who can make it through this gauntlet and have a degree of independence to raise their voice. So I'm glad that Mac Howard did it. There's another guy who actually wrote a book, Joseph Gulfo, had a decent book called um, Innovation Breakdown of the FDA and Wall Street Crippled Medical Advances, right? Like decent book. Mac Howard's book is also good. But, um, you know, the fundamental issue is that, uh, you know, these problems are not visible to people. And frankly, even if they were visible, like the TSA problems are, where's a coalition to reform it? Um, TSA shows how bad, how stupid, and how common a regulation can be when it's security theater, and yet people don't reform it. You know, but uh, but with the FDA or something, it's safety theater, and it's behind closed doors, and it's framed in more you know scary kind of ways. Like imagine if you know the TSA said we banned this person for bringing dihydrogen monoxide on the plane. Dihydrogen monoxide is a colorless, odorless substance, which in large doses can kill a human being. At high temperatures, it can cause scalding burns. And we thought he was going to use it. Now, of course, dihydrogen monoxide is water, right? But when you surround something in technical enough sounding language, you can make it sound bad. And most people lacking the ability to do technical diligence will just accept these regulators' proclamations for you know, truth. Now, in some areas, in, you know, taxis, in hotels, uh, increasingly in finance due to crypto, people have seen that actually, well, maybe a lot of old regulations are not good because there was enough strength to build an exit. You know, there's enough strength to build a parallel and alternative regime. But to do that for other areas is going to be non-trivial. And the fundamental question is, can we solve it with harmonization? 
and uh, really meaning can we deharmonize? Can we allow countries to sort of declare independence from the American regulatory regime? And I think that's going to happen. I think that, you know, American empire is fraying at the edges. Um, I think lots of countries, you know, have already started to allow for things that the U.S. doesn't. You know, for example, in Brazil, um, at least, you know, this is my recollection. Some, somebody might correct me on this, but they have a more liberal set of drone laws. In Singapore, they have self-driving car laws that are more liberal. I believe in Germany, they have, uh, they have more liberal stem cell regulations in the U.S., thanks to like Bush's you know, stem cell bill in, in the mid 2000s, a lot of stem cell research was pushed overseas. I know that the UK has something called the uh, FinTech Regulatory Sandbox, which is at least less onerous for early FinTech companies. So it's starting, it's been, it's been going on for the last several years. You've started to get what I call these special innovation zones by analogy to special economic zones. And these are ways you can sort of square the circle. You can say, you know, current regulations are poor and outdated, but people want regulation of some kind. I do agree with that. I'll come back to why. So, you know, thesis, the current regulations in the US are bad, holding back innovation. Antithesis, people want regulation of some kind. Synthesis, new regulations, right? New regulators, new sovereigns with different takes on it that have enough strength and, and confidence to not simply harmonize and capitulate to these people who are not elected, can't be fired in, in, in Silver Spring. Okay. This is the failure mode of the regulatory state. It is because of power. Coming all the way back, why did the FDA go and stop the authorizations for lab tests in, you know, the, in the critical month of February? Why did they not allow people to test for COVID when the thing could have been pandemic? Answer, because of power. Specifically, the FDA is very invested in stopping those paths which are outside of it, right? So you, know, you talk about exit. And, um, you know, there's, there's various ways outside of FDA. I actually tweeted this a while back, but right to try laws where you can try a drug, you know, if, if it's approved at the state level, FDA just gets notified. CLIA labs and laboratory developed tests, you can develop a test that's outside the FDA pathway and sets regulated by CLIA, which is still under HHS, but it's distinct. Compounding pharmacies, off-label prescription by MDs. Um, you know, medical tourism or exit countries which aren't harmonized with the FDA. Those are five different pathways where you can exit the FDA. And for the last 10, 15, you know, 20 years, FDA has been running rear guard actions on each of them whenever there's some event which they can use to demonize one of those pathways. Oh, that compounding pharmacy had an issue with some drug. All compounding pharmacies must be bad. We must regulate them to make it safer. And because the safety argument is sort of accepted unquestioningly by people, they don't realize that, you know, cutting off that exit may make them less safe. And the obvious thing was this year, when you cut off the alternative and everything had to go through FDA, we were all made much less safe because we didn't have the monitoring devices that could have given us early warning of COVID if we had all had, you know, quantified cell tests on our wrist. We didn't have even the lab tests that could have detected COVID because FDA blocked all of this stuff. So the reason they do this is power. There shall be no other before me, you know, the same power that makes, you know, it, it, like a two-bit cop want to assert authority over you. So, you know, very importantly, though, what I'm not saying here in all of this is I'm not saying end the FDA. That's impractical, right? You know, end the FDA, end the FAA, end the SEC. That doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is it's kind of a joke, right? Why is it a joke? Because these agencies are like very central hubs. They're, it's in the same way saying like end Amazon Web Services. Every site loads these every day. There's lots of data sets. There's lots of, you know, sort of impartial things they do, which every single day people are 
um, interacting with them, you know, so, so you, you basically crash the whole system, you know, in the same way, like ending the fed would crash the dollar system. So the alternative though, that is totally feasible. You can not end the FDA, not end the fed, not end the sec or the FDA, but you can exit them, um, by going to other countries by, you know, for example, stopping Americans from being your customers. Um, you can, you know, expand right to try within the U S you can get Mayo, Stanford, and Harvard clearing things rather than local regulators. You can delegate some of that regulatory authority and get competitive regulation with other high reputation authorities. So I think that's a much more practical way of going about it. And it's this problem, by the way, of regulation, that is the reason we don't have innovation in the fiscal world. That's the reason is because it's politically blocked. So, you know, a really interesting question is, um, you know, with Larry Page's thing, 10x is easier than 10%, right? It takes 10 years to get a drug through frequently. Could we start a new country in less time than that? Could we, could we get a new regulatory regime, which would be the reason to start a new country? And critically, we, the, the whole thing would be based on consent, okay? Your body, your choice. For the, for the same reason that, um, you know, you can bungee jump and you can skydive, right? For the same reason that euthanasia is legal in Washington, for the same reason that, you know, people are pro-choice, okay? For the same reason that people want to legalize drugs and end the drug war, why is it not your body, your choice? Why can't you have bodily autonomy where you take with advisement, yeah, okay, maybe this regulator has given a low review, low star rating to this, but I want to take my own counsel. Okay. I want to check it out myself in the same way that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, like, uh, this is a trivial example, but a critic may rate a movie as bad. You might see it as good, right? Um, if you trust the FDA, you trust these central agencies, wonderful. You can abide by their guidelines. If you think, for example, as with COVID that, their guidelines are sometimes too conservative and the tests that they're blocking as unsafe could actually be life-saving, you know, which was the case I think is, is now accepted um, that had we had those COVID tests earlier, we might've been able to pause the pandemic. If you believe they're too conservative, too technology conservative, you should be able to opt out. And this, by the way, is actually the true vulnerability there because, you know, all of the optics around these agencies is all set up. The camera is placed on the interaction between the regulator and the corporation. FDA is protecting you from the big bad drug companies, FAA from the big bad aviation companies, you know, Boeing and so on, um, SEC from the big bad, you know, uh, banks. But what they're not prepared for is the other side, which is the customer side. You know, FDA is, it, it, the optics as well as the substance, it, it has less of a case when it's going after an individual for doing self-experimentation. Um, SEC, you know, and this is what's happening now, right? With, uh, with blockchain, with quantified self, with um, personal genomics, with uh, drones, you don't have any more just like a few gigantic companies that are doing, um, you know, finance and uh, aviation and, you know, like bio respectively. Uh, instead, you have, um, you know, millions of independent hobbyists doing finance with blockchain and millions of independent hobbyists doing aviation with drones and millions of independent hobbyists doing genomics and bio with, with, with personal genomics and quantified self. And those people, you know, are, uh, they, they simply don't fit into the regulatory framework really because um, 
it is, it is one thing to say, oh, we protected you from this big, bad company. It's quite another thing to say, which happened, by the way, in the late 90s, we're suing Mr. Cohen from uh, taking a drug that could save his life. Um, this is Cohen versus uh, United States, I think, the actual case, C-O-H-A-N, um, Cohen versus United States, FDA. I think I had it in my um, PDF uh, on, on the regulation disruption in the future. If you go to my archive page, um, biologist.com front slash content dash archive. And there's a thing there called regulation disruption in the technologies of 2013. Okay. That it, that's got a PDF, which is the, you know, I mean, it's seven years old, but I think it holds up well. That's a 40 page case for um, regulations holding us back in many areas. So that PDF is worth reading in full. Okay. Um, yeah. So for example, like, you know, in, I remember this one. In 2010, FDA filed a thing which is like, there is no generalized right to bodily and physical health. Okay. <laughs> you, you think I'm joking. You have to actually read their stuff. It's so insane. Um, you know, there's no right to consume or feed children any particular food. There's no generalized right to bodily and physical health. There's no fundamental right to freedom of contract. And FDA's regulations rationally advance agency's public health mission. Okay. Um, that's 10-CV-04018-M1B uh, filed April 26, 2010, where they're basically um, stopping, you know, people from uh, having so-called raw milk, you know. And of course, raw milk, it sounds really bad. Oh my God, pasteurized milk is better, right? Um, and one of the things they cite is, uh, is Cohen, not Cohen, C-O-W-A-N, I got it wrong. Cohen versus United States 5F supplementary 2D1235-1224. I think it's Northern District of Oklahoma, 1998, rejecting a claim that the plaintiff had the fundamental right to take whatever treatment he wishes due to his terminal condition, regardless of whether the FDA approves the treatment. It is this part, and, and read this PDF, Regulation Disruption and the Technology of 2013. It is this part, which is not focused on, namely, ostensibly it's protecting you from the corporations, but really it is constraining the individual's decision. And look, with aviation, you could make some argument that there's an externality. You know, a plane could crash. Okay, that's there's actually an argument there. Um, with biomedicine, there's really not an argument. You know, if if you can bungee jump, if you can skydive, right? If you can do euthanasia, if you can literally legally kill yourself and people can assist you in doing so, right? If you can, if you support drug legalization, if you're pro-choice, there really should not be an argument that you can do whatever you want with your own body so long as you don't hurt others, including taking experimental drugs, trying experimental treatments, trying whatever, right? And um, I think that's a powerful argument. I think that's a case that we're gonna need to make for essentially your body, your choice. Um, and, and I think that the FDA is just colossal failure this year where it basically turned, helped turn what would have been a preventable pandemic, uh, you know, preventable situation into a pandemic by blocking testing when it was, um, you know, potentially catchable early on, their catastrophic failure this year is something that I think a lot more people have woken up to how much innovation they might be holding back. So rolling with the, the theme that you're going off of now, like the right to try, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to argue that a corporation can't do bad, but it's much harder to argue that someone can't, you know, try a medicine that might save their life uh, and tell them, no, that's bad for you when, you know, it's their choice, it's their body, they want to try. Um, this innovation versus regulation theme. Uh, you talked about harmonization earlier. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the exact opposite, but like experimentation sounds like it could be kind of the 
the opposite of that in a way. And, you know, it's impractical for like the United States maybe to dictate a certain direction that, you know, we go with COVID where everyone has to try this or everyone has to do that. And I know that's not what you're suggesting at all, but there needs to be room for some people to try this and choose to try this and other people to choose to try that and see what solutions are working for what people in ways that are much more quick and efficient and free than the FDA may permit now. So one of the things you've talked about is like this concept of the network state where people can, and you know, network states being plural, where people can find communities uh, where they align philosophically, where they align with their interests. You talk about like vegan as an example, like people could get together. And for what it's worth, like Tel Aviv in a sense is like, they've got a, a set of preferences that they agree with. Uh, And it's kind of like a, you know, a vegan community there where it influences diet and also, you know, other things. Uh, So basically having the the concept that these people can meet each other digitally online. So you can have someone from Singapore and someone from the United States and someone from Nigeria and they get together and they agree on the set of principles and then they grow in numbers and then they maybe are able to build their community up in VR, I think is like the second step that you talk about. And then uh, ultimately maybe they're able to crowdsource uh, capital through crypto and actually buy some land and then negotiate with the local government to have some sovereignty over that land. And all of a sudden you have this network state, as you call it, that's able to uh, experiment with different regulations and have freedoms to try various things based on their philosophies and their principles. Um, Is this the direction you see things going because of that regulatory and innovation clash that just kind of doesn't seem to work? People are, you know, it might be the rise of information of the internet, but people are kind of too smart. Here's why, here's why. The thing is, as critical as I am of regulations, I also recognize that a lot of people are small C conservative, number one, and many innovations may not work, right? You know, the reason that we have planes is that many early planes crashed, right? We didn't have the FAA or something like that regulating it, so people could take a risk and have both downside and upside. Now, I think on net, that was massively valuable to the world, but people absolutely did die. You know, we cannot shy away from that. People did die when planes did crash. They were test pilots, you know. Um, the, you know, th- there's, um, it's something where uh, we acknowledge that brave people can take a risk and die in, you know, a war or something like that, right? We acknowledge in some sense that these test pilots did exist, right? We acknowledge there's like risky medical procedures or what have you. Um, we, we should allow for uh, people to take calculated risks and be heroes, not fighting in a war and killing somebody, but medical heroes, right? Where you actually try riskier treatments potentially and they opt in. And if it works, it benefits the world. You know, by the way, this is not that crazy because this year, there was something that people talked about called challenge trials, right? Challenge trials, essentially the idea is that you opt in and you are well compensated, okay? And you're intentionally, you're, you're given the COVID vaccine and then intentionally exposed to COVID-19, okay? Why? Because normally the way a vaccine is tested is a so-called observational study. For example, just simplifying here, all right, you have a thousand people without the vaccine and you monitor them over a period and you find out how many get COVID versus not. And then you have a thousand people with the vaccine and you monitor them over a period and you see who gets COVID or not. And you expect the two distributions to be shifted, right? Like maybe 200 people in the first group or whatever, you know, 20 people, whatever the frequency is in the population get COVID. um, But, you know, one tenth as many in the second group get COVID. 
Okay. So that would show you observationally, you have some, you know, hint, assuming that all of them got exposed to COVID, that the, that the vaccine had some protective effect. But a challenge trial would allow that to happen much faster, where you would just expose people to the disease, you would see whether they got it or not, and where the vaccine prevented them from doing it, you'd have medical care right there. And rather than waiting 90 days or you know a year or whatever the vaccine monitoring trial is, and rather than also making that critical assumption that exposure was the same in those two groups, which it might well not be, just for stochastic, you know, different, you know, poorly controlled reasons. Instead, you have a perfectly controlled experiment where you expose them to the virus. It's literally Cox postulates, you know, where you're seeing if transmission pathogenesis is occurring, right? Um, you know, that Cox postulates is like actually how you, uh, you, you show that something is an infectious agent, right? It has three postulates, basically, um, or, or actually it's four. It's like the microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from disease, must be, be able to be isolated and grown in culture. It should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. And then it might, must be able to be re-isolated and identified as being identical to the original agent, right? And that shows you that that was the cause of the thing, right? Um, and, um, you know, so, so you'd actually show like that transmission paths just did not occur. The vaccine had, had protective effect. So point being that these people would take a risk, right? Now, zooming back up, um, how, do you, how do you scale that? Well, you, you start making societies where you say, A, broader society does not want to take a risk in this area. Fine, right? For the same reason people don't want to take a risk on a new product. There's some people who are risk tolerant, they're early adopters, and other people who aren't. It's not right to make people take a risk if they don't want to take a risk. But it's not right to prevent people from trying new things if they want to. And the way to reconcile that is you allow the early adopters to form their own jurisdictions where they opt out of the old regulations and they opt in to new ones. Now, if one person does this, they're just a kook, okay? If a million people do it, they're a country because Estonia is a million people, right? You know, if 10 million people do it, you know, as I've mentioned a few times, like, um, the, the United Nations, there's 233 nations in the United Nations, 30% uh, of them are less than a million people in size, and 60% are less than 10 million in size. And these are like, include some real countries, you know, Luxembourg is like 600k people, you know, Ireland, you know, is like, I think it's like 4 million people, like 4.2, if I'm mistaken, um, like um, 4.9, okay. Singapore is like 5 million, you know, 6 million people. Um, actually, I'll, when I look at the latest population, what is it? Um, it's uh, 5.639 or whatever, right? Uh, and, but there's others that are even smaller, right? Estonia is like 1 million, you know? Um, and, uh, and those are considered legitimate countries. And they, I mean, Estonia is on the Security Council, I think, this year. So it's, it's something where it's like up there with countries that are a thousand X bigger, right? Um, and so the, the idea here is at a certain scale, when enough people have enough motivation, I think early adopters, we can actually, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the mechanism, there's many different ways. The simplest would be something that's like Amazon HQ2, where 25,000 people were able to collectively bargain with New York State um, and with, uh, you know, Washington DC and so on and so forth to get certain breaks in return for moving there, okay? Um, an alternative would basically be, you, you know, rather than doing this within a corporate context, rather than HQ2, you know, Tesla did this with the Giga factory, for example, in, in Nevada, you know, Elon negotiated with some people, um, Boeing negotiated with South Carolina, um, 
you know, and then in a different context, China's bought a port in Israel. Uh, they also bought a port in Sri Lanka. You know, these are, those are more than just traditional, you know, like, like port deals. They, they involve like purchase of territory and lease rights and all this type of stuff, right? So there's, there's somewhere in between an outright purchase of the land from a sovereign versus, you know, just, just, you know, like, like using their territory on a reciprocity basis. Point being, these are deals that you can negotiate with sovereigns and that's becoming more of a thing. And um, so given enough mass, maybe it's 25,000, maybe it's 250,000 people, maybe you need a million people. I actually think a relatively small number of people with enough energy and zeal and alignment could be able to negotiate with the state and actually get a special innovation zone. And then 10X would be easier than 10% because we'd have all opted in. You know, Everybody here has said, look, maybe some people might die from self-driving cars but more people will die you know, from experimenting with them. But more people will die in the long run because 50,000 people are thereabouts a year. You know, how many car accidents are there per year? Fatal car accidents in, in the US um, I think it's alone. like a, a million worldwide this year. So far, I've, I've been tracking it compared to COVID deaths. Yeah, it's okay. So it's like, it's like 38,000 people die every year in US roadways, okay? Let's say, and this is a high number. I don't think it'll be that high. Let's say that 1,000 people die testing self-driving cars, okay? Like, but they do so because they've gone into a jurisdiction open-eyed, all right? They're not, not just some random thing crashed into them. They've gone jurisdiction open-eyed. They're like a test pilot. They are like, look, I might die, but I'm doing this in a heroic way such that others, you know, may live, you know? And, um, and then you actually have something. So there's pure consent. They're, they're, they've opted in like, it, like the test pilots did in the early days, like the challenge trials. And now we've actually reduced the number of deaths, right? Uh, you know, this is, this is the utilitarian calculation, um, it, but it's something where it's really about the story you tell, you know? If it's, oh, this evil corporation is exploiting people, they're so evil, let's ban self-driving cars and keep our current thing, we'll stick at 38,000 deaths a year, you know? And, and that's just kind of airbrushed out that that's actually happening. If the, this is about the concept of the dystopian future. Oh my God, the self-driving car is running us over. Today was so good and tomorrow is bad, these tech guys. The alternative is you say, today is not that good. 38,000 people are dying every year. If we can reduce it to 1,000 killed by self-driving cars, that's much better. You know, Even if it is new at first, people will get used to it as, as actually a much safer set of roads. Um, that's the kind of thing I think a lot about is how do we actually get jurisdictions where you're opting out, you're not changing any of the existing, for those people, you, you like your country, you can keep it, you know? <laughs> you, you want your existing regulatory state, you think it's really great, you know, knock yourself out, awesome, wonderful, you know, go to work. But for those people who want something different, let them have it and let's figure out a mechanism to get them to have it. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And going back to one of your points earlier about how all of these, you know, the big bad company is kind of put in a bad light. Uh, you have like an autonomous accident, whether it's Tesla or Uber, I think had to pause or shut down their program over it. Like one autonomous accident takes over the news and in terms of driving and, you know, it's, you know, no one's reading about the tons of, you know, hundreds or thousands of deaths in the US from from manual human drivers. But yeah. you have one of the autonomous and it's all over the place. And, you know, it, all of a sudden they can't go forward with the program anymore. Exactly. And just to, just to put a you know, not not to find a point on that. Let's say that that just set back self-driving deployment by six months, okay? And let's further say that under a self, full self-driving regime, okay, um, 
you'd only have, I don't know, a thousand deaths a year rather than 38,000. Okay. Which, because a lot of these deaths are due to drunk drivers, they're due to human error, people falling asleep at the wheel, road rage, whatever. I don't know the exact breakdown, but you'd have to assume a fair number of them are due to human error. Okay. And let's just assume again, for the sake of argument, that it goes down from 38,000 to 1,000. It's not going to be zero. You know, self-driving cars won't be perfect, but it'll probably be less. Okay. So if that's the case, then you'd have a net reduction of 37,000 a year. And the six month delay would have cost you one half of 37,000, which is basically more than 18,000 deaths for delaying this thing in the name of protecting people after one person died. Okay, so that's, it's Bastiat's thing, seen and unseen. The reason is that we haven't told the story of those 18,000 people, right? We, you know, the, this is actually a problem that technology now needs to address is we need to make the unseen seen, okay? If you're doing self-driving, you need to, um, you know, figure out, I mean, maybe this is the, the, there's a number of different ways to make the case, but you need to make the emotional case. You need to show what this would look like. You need to do that breakdown I just talked about, show how many were drunk drivers or how many were, you know, people falling asleep or, or human error of different kinds, right? And, and compare that to what a self-driving place would look like and make the emotional case. We need to make the emotional case for drug and device and uh, quantified self-approvals. We need to make the emotional case for you know, various kinds of technologies and not just the financial case because the emotional case will be made against those technologies by technological conservatives. And that's why I think that article on the purpose of technology is so important. It is not, I mean, look, we're, we're, I shouldn't say halfway there. We're some of the way there. Tech has now created its own media ecosystem. There's blog posts, right? And there's tweets, certainly. There's podcasts, wonderful podcasts you've got and so on. But we're still actually in a mental box. The next level up is we need our own Hollywood. We need our own New York Times. We need our own Harvard. We need our own full media ecosystem, which is content for and by technological progressives, okay? Um, and by that, what I mean is, like, imagine a Netflix content library of just infinite amounts of stuff, which framed it from the technological progressive as opposed to the, like, sort of dystopian, you know, technological conservative uh, standpoint, right? And, uh, and that would be just something where, um, I mean, media is really important, right? Because as I mentioned, media fills in the gaps, media motivates. There's countless people who got into robotics, even, even by seeing Terminator, which is dystopian, right? Countless people who got into space because, you know, they had seen contact or something like that, right? Media is important because, you know, it's the stories we, we tell each other. It's like the, you know, the narratives about what is good, what is bad. So many people got into tech actually because of the movie, The Social Network. Again, even that was sort of a left-handed compliment. But at the time, you know, the um, Aaron Sorkin, he couldn't help but in a certain way to recognize Zuckerberg's genius, you know? He couldn't help it. Like the scenes of programming in that movie, you know, certainly it's a little bit Rashomon-like, you know, from one standpoint, oh, he's so evil, he screwed all his friends and so on and so forth, right? From another standpoint, it is, well, this guy built something from his dorm room that got to 500 million, now 3 billion people, fighting off lawsuits and so on all the way from people who, you know, everybody was entitled, but nobody wanted to do any work other than him. And, uh, you know, everybody wanted a piece of him, but nobody, you know, was actually um, contributing, right? And look, you know, I, I, I'm not, um, 
I'm not saying that every aspect of everything Zuck has done or everything Facebook has done, I certainly can't defend all of that or anything, but I will say that there is on net um, a genuine heroism to building something of that scale and magnitude, you know, from scratch, because, you know, I, I tweeted this last year actually, um, but just as a corrective, right? You know, there's this guy at the NYT as, as they always do attacking Facebook because it's their number one competitor, which they never want to acknowledge. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they were like, oh, you know, Zuckerberg is so bad, blah, blah. And I was like, Facebook has provided free long distance phone calls, texts, video chat, group messaging, photo albums, event management, white pages, yellow pages, and dozens of other services to literally billions of people. The New York Times reported that there were WMDs in Iraq. You know, and that's a different frame on the problem, right? That's a different frame on, you know, that report alone. I mean, how many millions of people, that, that's what validated it, right? This validated the whole war in Iraq. Millions of people were displaced. Lots of people were fooled. I was fooled at the time. Lots of people believe that, you know, WMDs actually exist in Iraq because the New York Times said so, right? Um, and and, and they, they airbrush their own issues, but they, they go after FB, right? Anyway, point being that if people have a negative perception of Facebook, I'm not saying that there isn't some legitimacy to that. There's many, many things I, I disagree with, but they also did benefit billions of people. And there's a genuine heroism to that that's not normally portrayed. So these media stories really matter in terms of what we think of as good or what we think of as bad. The very fact that I need to, you know, or, or should, I mean, it's it's okay that there's criticism of Facebook. We're not saying that that's, that's terrible, but that criticism is not, um, it's not put on a scale properly. It's like the criticism as we were just talking about, about the single person dying in the self-driving car accident. It's not compared, it's not um, contextualized relative to the 37,000, 38,000 people dying each year from, from normal cars. And so, um, you know, nobody else is gonna contextualize that. Certainly, you know, employees of legacy media corporations are not going to do so because tech companies are their number one competitors. So it falls just to do it. So that's why, you know, it, it's yes, set up a blog. Yes, you know, generate content and so on. But also don't just learn to code, learn to write, report, publish, and direct. Learn to create films, learn to create video games. They don't need to be two hour long feature films. They can be, that's a legitimate art form. They can be VR environments. That's a content creation environment, which you know we haven't really gotten into yet, but combines aspects of both film and video games, right? Um, you know, the, we aren't yet there in terms of telling our story. We need to get there and because uh, no one's going to tell our story for us. And by us, I mean, technological progressives, the kind of people who enjoy your podcast are the folks I'm talking to. Right. And I want to, you know, highlight something you just mentioned there. Like it's one thing if you try to contextualize in an article with numbers uh, and, you know, data and facts, et cetera. But it's another thing when you actually appeal to people's emotional triggers and show them and whether it's a long form movie, uh, you know, a Hollywood movie or a Netflix suite of movies, or if it's, you know, a set of TikToks. I was talking with um, Isabel Bomecki on the show uh, a, a week or so ago, and she was like, you know- Oh, she's people, amazing. Yeah, when she people- She did the think, nuclear videos. She's so good, right? Exactly. People, well, people yeah. talk, she was saying, she's like, people, I, I brought up, because I talked about what we're talking about now a little bit with Vitalik as well, like the techno-progressive, the lack of, of things to look, through, look to for techno-progressive content. And it's like, the one movie that came to his mind was actually a movie from China, which kind of makes sense. Um, ah yes oh which one was that uh i don't remember off the top of my head i'm not quite as sharp as you with the recall but uh (laughs) but but isabel um was talking about how you know people think about nuclear energy and they go to like the simpsons movie or more recently chernobyl 
and right, right. the things that just show you pure bad of nuclear. And you actually had a tweet as well. I think it was one more one of your more popular tweets. Um, it was just a you know it was not even a, a one minute thing. It was like a ten second thing. It was this big rock man like protect, pro- protecting oh, this yes. little city from this climate rolling change. yeah from climate change. And, and so the rolling rock down the hill represented climate change, and this guy represents nuclear energy, and he's protecting it. And then behind him, he's got this city that he's trying to save, and it's shooting renewables and anti nuclear and and all of these regulations at him and eventually he just kind of gives up and the rock kills the city and that was like a great microcosm and it takes 10 seconds and it's super you know you put a few words on a few on a, on a moving graphic and you're done and people kind of get it and you know that might not be quite as memorable to someone as like chernobyl and that's why we kind of need both but i totally it, it totally resonates with me what you're saying about like needing to not only contextualize like the present actually isn't perfect people suffer in their last 10 years before they die and we're not really progressing on a lot of these visions that we had. There's the great stagnation and everything like that. Um, you know, basically everything's not all flowers and daisies and technology can, you know, while it will come with some negatives, it can actually help with a lot of these things, not just 10%, but 10 X and we can live longer and we can have, you know, more sound money and we can uh, do all of the, and we can experiment and people who are willing to take those higher risks for high rewards can kind of be, not war heroes, but medical heroes, like you said. Uh, and there starts to be like a more positive picture that's painted, I think. Yep. Yep, exactly. I th- and, you know, if I leave your audience with something that they personally could do, how do we move from the great stagnation to the great acceleration? You know, how do we restore these curves? I think first we need to visualize it before we can do it. So make movies, make movies, make movies. They don't have to be two hour films. You, like with AI video editing, you know, like, in fact, you should make two minute and 20 second clips, 140 second clips, not just for Twitter, but for other platforms. Um, I mean, literally you can just start with Keynote and you just storyboard it in Keynote and you can export it as a movie file. If you know how to make slide decks, you know how to make, you know, simple movies, you know, Al Gore actually did a slide deck essentially as, as a movie. Right. And I think we can take our existing skills of making slide decks and telling stories about tech and actually start, you know, adding production values there because, you know, in fact, there's a whole technical side of Hollywood that makes the movie magic. They're all programmers. You know, this is the back of the house. These are the folks who, um, you know, they, they, they make the special effects, they make the computer graphics. Um, and they're, they're not as heralded or uh, front paged as, as the actors. Um, but I think, we can do CG actors now. You can do computer graphics actors. You can have a library of actors. You can animate those actors. You can essentially, you know, whether it's Unity or Unreal, uh, this, this you know, kind of discipline called Machinima, where, you know, it's been around for a while, but you basically have, you know, video games used as a cinematic tool and the graphics are getting better. And here's the thing. Um, we've seen on Twitter, uh, we've seen in other social media apps, that a short video can actually be very impactful in terms of telling a story. And the impact of lots of short videos, the cost is low for them. You could find which ones resonate. Um, you know, Isabella's stuff in nuclear power is wonderful. You can just do a hundred of those. And then, yeah, you, once you build up the audience and you found that there's a thing, then you, you know, do a feature film and you crowdfund it, um, or it's a video game or something like that. But we just need to go, I mean, look, as I said, blog posts are great, podcasts are great, but movies, 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 film, 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 short videos, short videos, short videos.
should do vid of Jake or something like that. Video of Jake.